0: Heavenly Father, um, thank you for what you're teaching us. Thank you for unveiling things to us, things that perhaps others for many years and centuries before us have longed to know. And uh, when they have left this earth and come into your presence, Father, they know it all, and that's what we look forward to also. But nonetheless, Father, there is a privilege and a blessing to hear and know things even while we remain, and not everyone gets that privilege, Father and you have appointed for us in this time the opportunity that is so special. We thank you for it. You give us teachers to know things, Father, that you have chosen to reveal. You give us opportunity and places to go and sit and listen so that we would take advantage of them. We we have all these blessings as you pour out on us the opportunity to learn your word, Father, and then in some cases, Father, we take it in and we do nothing with it, and that's, uh, that's not what we want. We know when we read a gospel, Father, when you show us the, the word of your Son working in teaching or when we read an epistle and you have the apostles applying what truths you've revealed to them we know sometimes father very easily what to do with those things but sometimes it can be hard father as we read what you've given us through a prophet of old for it's not always immediately apparent how it relates to to our walk with you today father so i ask lord that that perhaps more than anything else tonight would be revealed that these things would have some personal meaning for us in what you've asked of us what you're calling us to do, how you're asking us to live. Perhaps things unrelated to the text, but something you put on our hearts through what we learn. We look forward to that, Father. Let us uh, put ourselves in this room and before you and also put you and your word in our heart in a way that uh, leads us to obey. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get back in. Ezekiel War, as some call it. This is chapters 38 and 39 collectively. That's the war. We're trying to study these chapters according to an understanding of what the Lord is doing overall in a section here. I find that to be very helpful. I hope you do as well. And so that's why you have that chart that I've given you now for the last several weeks. That chart relates each chapter in this section of the book to the fulfilling of God's covenants to Israel. So in the covenants that God gave to Abraham and then later to David, he promised four things. He promised a king of power, a land of prosperity, a people of peace and a God who would live among them. And as the chart I give you shows, I see him addressing all four of these promises in turn as he goes through these chapters with Ezekiel, giving the people of Israel who are currently in exile a hope of what will come for the people of God in a day to come, according to what has been promised. And so it's the counterbalance to the judgment that they're experiencing. What they see around them isn't the whole story. There's a future that is yet coming, and it has all of this glory awaiting them. Now, of course, we're not in exile and we're not Israel, and so we're far from removed from their events, but we still have this same glorious future awaiting us as well, though we're not Israel, we share in it with them. And so for us, we sit closer to the end point than they did, seeing it perhaps a little more clearly than they did, and knowing it's coming soon. Now, as you look at the chart I gave you, we've... Uh, Look from chapters 33 all the way now down to tonight, to chapter 39. And if you notice, I colored them in different ways. And I've done this because I wanted to illustrate, or or emphasize, I guess, how God addresses each of these four things in the promises He gave to Abraham and David. He addresses each of them in two parts. So, if you notice, chapters 33 and 34 deal with the king, the promised king, and He dealt with it in two parts. And then the next two chapters covered the land of prosperity and the next two chapters covered the people of peace you see the pattern right i love patterns when you see patterns you see something god's wanting you to see you're watching him move in a very structured way a god of of organization not of disorganization a god of logic and truth not a god of confusion and when as you see that it's intentional so that we'd understand where he's going he's it's like breadcrumbs he's showing us where he's going And as you move into the final section, which is God dwelling among his people, this section also has two parts. But in this case, the first part is one chapter. The second part is much longer. And that's because of what he's emphasizing. The first part is God showing how he makes himself known to the Gentile nations in the time of the kingdom, how he dwells among them, if you will. But he doesn't literally dwell in their presence. He reserves that only for Israel. So, the second part of God among his people is the one that focuses on how God dwells among his people. And that's nine chapters because God goes into great detail about how he will dwell in the kingdom. His home, his place of residence, what it will look like, where it will be, and how people will interact with him in that place. All right? So that's why that second half is so much longer than the first half. But the structure is still fundamentally the same. A part one and a part two, a part one and a part two. And here we are at the beginning of the last section, part one of the last section. Now last week we looked at chapter 38, uh, which is the first part of Ezekiel's war. And so you have this confusion, potentially, because you have a two-part discussion of a war, and then you have the two-part discussions of each of the promises, and they overlap. So that last week we saw part one of the war but it was part two of the promise of a people of peace. All right? This week, we're looking at part one of the last set of promises on God dwelling among His people, but it's part two of the war. Have I lost you? Alright, so in this chapter, we're looking at chapter 39, This in this night, chapter 39, the second part of the war, the first part of God's addressing of how He dwells among His people. And at the start of the kingdom, the Lord said, I would start a new covenant with Israel. He said, I would establish a new covenant of peace. And He promised nothing would disturb that peace. You remember back in chapter 37, when we first started looking at the people of peace, He says, here's where He says, I'll give them a covenant. He says in Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-five, He says, They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. They will live on it. They and their sons and their sons' sons forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. So that's a promise for a new kind of covenant that has not yet been formed with Israel, a peace covenant. Okay. So God in chapter 37 sets up the concept of a peaceful Israel in their land. And then when we got to chapter 38 last week, we began to understand that in order for God to show that he was keeping his covenant of peace, he had to show that there would be a disturbance of the peace. And when that disturbance came, he would put it down. He would keep the peace as he promised. And so he puts a war at the end of this kingdom time so that at the very end, when the peace is disturbed or they attempt to disturb the peace, he can defeat them and in doing so show his faithfulness to the covenant And accomplishing it at the end of the kingdom also serves the purpose of keeping his promise to Christ. Because he told Christ that he would put all enemies in subjection to Christ. And the last of those is Satan. So as David wrote in Psalm 110, "...the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies." Your people will freely volunteer in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. Speaking of Jesus ruling in the kingdom and how the whole point of Him ruling in the kingdom, of having a time of rule, of having Jesus as King on the earth, the whole reason the kingdom exists is so that God can ultimately show how He rules in a way that we can't. And that He can put all enemies in subjection to Him while we cannot. And the last of those is Satan and death and that will be the last event of the kingdom. So he rules over his enemies, it says, until they're crushed. The final moment of that is the war that God establishes through the releasing of Satan, through the work of Gog, of Magog. And in the way that he puts it down, he shows himself faithful to the promise of peace to Israel. But it also serves another purpose. The second purpose of that war was in revealing to the nations... That God is God of all. That the Lord of Israel, the God amongst the people of Israel, is also the God of the whole of earth. And in verse sixteen last week of chapter thirty-eight, when speaking of the war, the Lord said this in verse sixteen: "You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud to cover the land. It shall come about in the last days that I will bring you against my land, so that the na-, look, so that the nations may know me when I am sanctified through you before their eyes, O God." All right, the nations, the Gentiles, would know that God of Israel is the God. Later in the chapter, verse 23, he says, I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, make myself known in the sight of many nations, and they will know that I am the Lord. All right. So by defending Israel, the Lord reveals himself to the nations that are on earth in that day in a new and mighty way. And so the Lord is known as the Lord of all the peoples of the earth by his defense of Israel. So now if you look at the chart again, The Ezekiel War is is accomplishing two purposes. First, it shows God faithful to His peace covenant, chapter 38. And it shows Him making Himself known to the nations, chapter 39. We studied 38 last week. That's the invasion and how it comes to its abrupt end. And that certainly demonstrated God's faithfulness to His peace covenant. And it certainly showed that He could take care of Israel and defend them and so on. That leaves us with the second half of the war tonight the next section in the chart, where God will show himself dwelling among his people. And he does this in two parts, as I said. So in chapter 39, he shows how he brings the war to an end. But as he does it, he brings testimony to all the Gentile nations. All right. so chapter 39, verse 1. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. I will turn you around drive you on, take you up from the remotest parts of the north, and bring you against the mountains of Israel. I will strike your bow from your left hand, and dash down your arrows from your right hand. You will fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you. I will give you as food to every kind of predatory bird and beast of the field. You will fall in the open field, for it is I who have spoken, declares the Lord God. And I will send fire upon Magog and those who inhabit the coastlands in safety, and they will know that I am the Lord. So, as you open up chapter 39, it sounds a lot like you're back in chapter 38. And that's intentional. And before we look at the text itself, we should ask the question, why is he repeating himself? Why does the beginning of this chapter read so much like the beginning of chapter 39? Well, the logical conclusion is that there must be a division taking place in the narrative at this point. That is, between chapters 38 and 39, there's a division happening. And therefore, as you move across that division and into 39, the Lord takes a moment to remind you of the circumstances of the battle before He then moves the narrative in a new direction. So what is that division? Well, that division is what you see on my chart, in my opinion. That division is that the Lord is now moving out of a conversation about establishing peace, keeping peace, promising peace, faithful to peace... Now it's about something else, because what we have at this point in chapter 39 is peace. Right? The battle's over in chapter 38. Peace is already in place. In fact, if you were thinking about this strictly in military terms, or let's say in the sense of God defending Israel, you would wonder why chapter 39's in the Bible. Exactly what purpose is this serving in terms of showing us God's faithfulness? We already know He's faithful. He defeated them. You know, let's all go home. There's obviously something else going on here. And that something else begins with him reminding us of the circumstances. And he describes how he will fulfill his promise here to Abraham's descendants. That is, by his relationship with Abraham's family. Remember, he said, I will bring blessing to all nations. That was back in the Abrahamic covenant. And he's going to give us a lot more detail about his situation with Israel. That's chapters 40 and onward. But he is going to at least address what he does for Gentile nations in the kingdom, starting here. And what he's concerned about for Gentile nations is that nobody who is on earth among those nations would fail to notice or understand that the God of Israel is the God of the earth. Alright, right, keep that in the back of your mind. We'll come back to talking about that here in a minute. The circumstances of this are a great war that ends the kingdom period. And the Lord here is just reminding us of that. Opening the chapter with a reminder, he says the Lord has set himself against Gog and the surrounding regions. He says, verse 2, he turns against the leader, he drives the leader into war, he takes the man and his, and his army up from the remotest parts of the north, and he brings them against or down against Israel's mountains." So the sense of all that is a puppet being controlled by strings, right? That's intentional. The language here is to say, that this is not happening by the man's own thoughts, his own desire, his own wisdom. God is simply moving him like pieces on a chessboard. The way he wants, to the outcome that he wants. So that at the end, you have this vast army invading, as we know from last week. Yet, despite the vastness of it, uncountable numbers, like a, like a cloud on the ground of people. No matter that, it doesn't matter, God defeats them easily. Not even a, a contest. Verse 3, he says, He'll strike the bow and arrows from their hands. Now, that little detail reminds us of something we started last week. We need to continue in this week. And that is, this is a war that is prosecuted in very rudimentary terms. It's a very simple war. Horses, bows, spears, arrows. And this is not modern warfare. Which means the events could not happen in our present age of sophistication. There's no concept in which the war could break out tomorrow, and yet all of the participants would you know, resort to what Boy Scouts use when they go hunting. Right? This doesn't make any sense. Nor would you say, well, that must mean it represents things of the deep past. No, because there's, there are no events in history that parallel the circumstances of these two chapters. So we can't find anything in history that matches it. Well, if it's not in the past, and it can't fit in the present, given the sophistication of our age... Well, then it has to be in the future, but that future has to be a very simple time. And sure enough, we learned last week that the time of the kingdom is a very simple agrarian time, according to Scripture. The time of the kingdom is a time of ignorance when it comes to war. People don't even know how to make implements of war. People are not training for war. And this isn't just for some period of the time. This is a whole thousand years. Can you imagine how much knowledge is lost when it comes to warfare when generation after generation for a thousand years has not practiced warfare? No one has a clue what to do. It's back to the time of sticks and stones for that purpose. So what Gog is determined to do is he saw an opportunity in Israel and as God allowed Satan to deceive his heart, remember the motive? What was the motive from last week? Greed simple greed. He saw Satan deceived him, much in the same way that Satan said, "Did God surely say, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Somehow Satan deceived the man and said, is it really true that Israel has all those goods and you can't have them? Something to that effect enters the heart of this man. He looks and goes, yeah, you're right, look at all that stuff. And then Satan says, you know what else I noticed? They don't have any walls. They don't have any defenses. You can just walk right in there and take it. And God says, you know what, I think you're right. And he tells a few friends, and next thing you know, The world's been deceived by Satan into this act of warfare. And they come riding horses with the simplest of tools, bows and arrows. You might ask, why do they think they're going to win this battle with such simple things? Well, just that itself would argue for a very rudimentary time. Because what it suggests is, no one has anything better. That is to say, they're not worried about being met with tanks and Apache helicopters. These are the modern weapons of their day. They're going to be met with nothing. People with no walls, no gates, no bars. The art of war and the implements of war are lost, so that even someone who just has brute strength, raw numbers, sheer mass of people is enough, or so it would seem, to be able to do what you want. And so, for the same reason, the spectacle of millions and millions of people rising up to conquer Israel, yet only with wooden tools the two juxtaposed kind of highlights the hopelessness and the helplessness of humanity, doesn't it? That that's the best they can do. You remember the time back in uh, Genesis where you hear of of the world building the Tower of Babel. And they say their goal when they go after this is to build something that can reach to the heavens. Right? To reach to the heavens. And then when God finally decides to do something about it, we're told, and God came down to see what men were doing which is to mock the fact that no matter what they did with their tower, it was going to be far from reaching the heavens. God had to come down to find it, right? Well, likewise, uh, an uncountable number of men and women marching into battle, carrying wooden armaments, thinking they can invade an Israel protected by God himself. I mean, it's folly. It's hopeless folly. But they're still doing it. And as they invade and as they attack, they're struck down in moss, the bodies of these people are left exposed, we're told here, to vultures, to, to birds of prey, and uh, they're just hang- they're just everywhere. Now, the reference here to predatory birds comes up again at the end of the chapter, but I just want to address it up front here because it gets to one of our questions of timing. We've been looking at this issue of when do, do these events occur in history, and there's a connection that you can draw from this chapter to a chapter in Revelation. And it specifically, it hinges on this reference to birds eating the remains of of the people who die. In Revelation 19, speaking of the war that ends tribulation, we sometimes call that the War of Armageddon, we hear this, Revelation 19:17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in midheaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, the flesh of all men, both free and slaves, and small and great." And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war with him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." Probably a scene that's familiar to most of you. That's a a scene that describes how the war at the very end of tribulation will take place. Christ returning, it's he's the one that says, sat on the horse. He's the one that had the army with him of angels and of us. And as he comes back and faces an antichrist and his army arrayed to destroy Israel, there's not much of a battle. He destroys the army very easily. And in the aftermath, you see birds being told they're free to eat from all of those who are dead on the ground. We call that Armageddon. It's the end of tribulation, the culminating event of the seven-year tribulation. But because you see that reference to armies dying and birds eating them and the like, it's a clear opportunity, at least, for someone to try to draw a parallel. To say, for example, that maybe this war of Armageddon is the same war that Ezekiel is predicting in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. And that maybe this bird connection is how we know that. You know, you have a massive loss of life at each in each case, they're both dying at the hand of God in both cases. You have the land covered by dead bodies in both cases, you have birds eating them in both cases. So maybe that's the connection. Well, for that reason, perhaps more than any other, you you find somebody you find people who agree or think they they have found the timing of the war of Ezekiel to be the timing of the War of Armageddon. Remember I said earlier that there were Uh, these options that people sometimes will cling to for when in history this event takes place. Um, Some would say that the events of chapter 38 and 39 are just symbolic. They never really happen. They're just picturing things. You know, a message is built in, but not a literal fight. Some would tell you that this is happening uh, anytime now in the present age, sometime before tribulation. And that means it could happen tomorrow. Some would tell you that it happens in tribulation, the Armageddon War that I just described. And then a fourth view is the one that believes it happens in the millennial kingdom at the very end, which is obviously the one I'm giving you. This is where some would say it happens in tribulation because of this connection with the birds. But that interpretation fails for several reasons. One of them, though, is that it it fails to address the context of Ezekiel. I mean, if you think about it for a minute, why would Ezekiel break out of his multi-chapter discussion about the kingdom to suddenly go back in time without any real reason there's nothing in the text that suggests why he did this but for some reason he's talking about the kingdom 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 and then all of a sudden he says oh by the way let's talk about the armageddon war again and then right after that what does he do he go right back into the kingdom again it's a non sequitur it doesn't fit the context it doesn't explain itself there's no rational reason and then besides the contextual problem there's a timing issue with putting this in the time of tribulation we'll see that here later in the chapter Notice in verse 6, you'll see the first here of what will be multiple references in this chapter by the Lord to his purpose in the events of this chapter. He says, he destroys Magog, those who come with that army, by fire, so that they will know the Lord. That is the reason for the war, the reason for the Lord destroying these invaders in such a visible and a dramatic way is to make a point, and he explains that point more fully in the next two verses. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, "...My holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it shall be done," declares the Lord God. "...This is the day of which I have spoken." So the Lord has, has said, "...This war will serve several purposes." First, he says, "I will make myself known in the midst of Israel." Now, that kind of sounds like a strange statement at first. In fact, I've seen people who look at this and say, "This is argument for why it cannot be during the time of the kingdom, because Israel knows him. All Israel knows him." In fact, in Jeremiah thirty-one, you read this concerning what it will be like for Israel in the time of the kingdom. Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one. You heard, "Behold." days are coming declares the lord when i will make a new covenant with the house of israel and with the house of judah not like the covenant which i made with their fathers in the day i took them by their hand to bring them out of the land of egypt my covenant which they broke although i was a husband to them declares the lord but this is the covenant which i will make with the house of israel after those days declares the lord i will put my law within them and on their heart i will write it and i will be their god and they shall be my people they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying know the lord for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them declares the lord for i will forgive their iniquity and their sin i will remember no more so in the time of the kingdom all israel will know the lord there's no one in the kingdom within israel who does not know who the lord is and so no one's going to be teaching each other about the lord And we know that's because we've already studied that they'll all be glorified in that time. So when we hear the Lord say, I will be known in the midst of my people Israel, that seems to suggest, well, that can't be in the time of the kingdom because why would he say he needs to make that happen? It's already true. Well, you're misreading the text if you hear him saying it that way. That's not really what he's saying. Take another look uh, at the answer. And to do that, start with the chart again. What is this chapter about? This chapter is about him making himself known not to Israel, but to who? Who? to the other nations. And notice the phrasing now of chapter of verse 7 in light of that context. He's saying, he will make himself known in the midst of my people. Now what he's saying is this, I will make the nations know I am the God in the midst of Israel. That in other words, the people of the world will know that Israel has a God, he lives among them, and he will be the God of all people, that he is the God of the whole earth. Now here you raise a new question by that interpretation. That is, I've just told you that what God's goal is, is to make the rest of the world know He's in Israel with Israel, and that He's God of Israel, but also God of the world. And you're wondering, well, wait a minute, this is the kingdom. I mean, this is heaven, as we sometimes call it. Heaven is you know, the place we're going to live. Isn't this utopia? Doesn't everyone know God? Well, remember what we said, among other things so far in this study, there are unbelievers in the kingdom, right? We've established there's a world of unbelievers born into the kingdom over time. Your best example of that, of course, is all the people Gaga went out and recruited to go fight against Jesus, okay? That's not going to be a bunch of believers doing that. That's obvious uh, to tell you that there's unbelievers in the kingdom. But beyond that, we've heard Psalms 110 say Jesus would rule in the midst of his enemies in the time of the kingdom. This is a time in which there is unbelief and there is opposition to Christ. Even as you and I might be there in a glorified way and serve him in perfection, there's others around us who do not, okay? And therefore, as we're learning in this book, and as we'll continue to learn in a future chapter, Jesus has people in the world who don't acknowledge Him for who He is, don't know Him for who He is. And then on top of that, you're going to learn later in, this, in chapters, uh, I think it's 43 of Ezekiel, that you don't see Jesus anywhere. He's not out walking around. His face isn't on billboards. It's not like He's you know, in the market every day, levitating to prove to you that He's God. He sits in the Holy of Holies, behind the veil, in the temple, which we're going to study in a few chapters, no one sees him. No one knows he's there, in the sense that it's not provable. You have to take by faith that Christ is resident and ruling from Jerusalem. And uh, the kingdom is not a time and in a place where there are miracles happening left and right. That's not in Scripture either. It's not a time in which people are just magically doing wonderful things and everyone knows that means God exists. No, it's a life of real agrarian rudimentary living and joy and so the world will have to have faith in the word of god just as it does now if it is to accept that christ as king rules from the seed of david in that big building on that mountain in that country on the other side of the earth so god has the same goal then that he has now to glorify himself among the nations and to do that he will eventually come to the point through ezekiel 38 and 39 where he does that for the sake of all humanity But leading up to that point, there will be doubt. So the Lord's statement here makes sense in that after a thousand years, when the world's been repopulated and much of the world may be unbelieving at that point, Satan released to go deceive them, brings them up against the king in his place, and God responds in a supernatural act of defense of Israel. And in doing so, he says, the nations will know that I am a God in the midst of Israel. Much like he did for Pharaoh in the time of the Exodus. It's the same kind of situation. And as a result, he says, the world will know this without a doubt. That in that day, he says, a day he has spoken about in the past, it will come to pass. But what is this day he has spoken about in the past? Well, that's the day in Psalms 110, for example, where he said he would put all of Jesus' enemies under his feet. It's also a day that Isaiah speaks about. In Isaiah 9, when he speaks of the purpose of the kingdom being fulfilled. Listen to this, Isaiah 9-2. He says, People who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Now that's a reference to Christ's first coming. But the next verse moves to the next stage of his plan. Verse 3, You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. That's in reference to his second coming verse 4 you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of midian this is speaking about the end of the tribulation the end of the kingdom for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tomut and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire you know where we're going in this chapter in verse 5, it speaks of a battle. Now, in the midst of a discussion of Christ coming and ruling and serving and creating joy and gladness and all the rest, there's a discussion of a battle in the time of the, tr- of the kingdom. And it's a battle, if you notice, that says, according to Isaiah, ends with the debris of that war becoming fuel for a fire. And what do you do next in the section that we're studying in Ezekiel? Well, look at verse 9 of Ezekiel. He says, those who inhabit the cities of Israel will go out and make fires with the weapons and burn them, both shields and buckles, bucklers, bows and arrows, war clubs and spears, and for seven years they will make fires of them. They will not take wood from the field or gather firewood from the forests, for they will make fires with the weapons, and they will take the spoil of those who despoiled them and seize the plunder of those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. I believe that's a direct reference to what Isaiah is talking about. That Isaiah, in other words, is is saying that God's purpose in this is to display His might among the nations as they come up against Him because there will be a time and a period at the end of the time of the kingdom in which many Gentiles have lived their whole life as part of the kingdom without ever recognizing Jesus is who He said He was and that He's resident in Israel and that Israel has a true God. Otherwise, how do you explain Gog thinking he can go in and attack He's self-deceived. He doesn't give any credit to that possibility. And as the war is prosecuted and as the Lord defeats them all and wipes them all out, he's making clear to the rest of the nations who didn't participate in the battle, I am here and I am the God of Israel, as, as you've heard. And he says, my name will never be profaned again. You notice that in the earlier passage I read? Never again. Well, the only way you can say never again is if this is truly the end of all sin. The moment at which we put an end to that problem. Because god's name is profaned as long as there is sinning still taking place that puts this also at a timing at the end of the kingdom right in isaiah 9 you get to that verse where he says there's going to be a battle but the end of the battle is going to be all of that material will be fuel for a fire kind of a, a little obscure reference in the middle of isaiah 9 and then he just moves on but now we get to ezekiel and we see ezekiel mentioning something very similar he says after the lord has vanquished the invading armies you have this wasteland you've got dead everywhere now keep in mind he doesn't give us numbers here but every indication is that we're talking about millions and millions of people an army bigger than probably anything that's ever been assembled in one place before and each of them is carrying something a helmet some kind of shield a spear maybe or a bow an arrow multiply that by millions and it's all made of wood and now the people are dead because God just goes and they're all dead in place they fall over you know and it was fire it was hail it was brimstone but they're all dead Well, all that wood is just scattered everywhere. And the people of Israel, they themselves were not involved in the battle. They're back at home. They were watching the whole thing on cable news. You know, by by candlelight, right? Because it's... (laughs) And they watched the battle take place. They are not a part of it. They're not threatened at all. God took care of that. But then they say, well, you know, there's a bunch of fuel out there. And so the people come out, it says, and they collect the weapons... Notice the list again: shields, bows, arrows, war clubs, spears. All of these are wooden implements. And for seven years, they used the fuel for fire. Now, there's been misconceptions, I think, out there that come from the text. And I I want you to look carefully at the text with me and see if we don't have the opportunity here to dispel a few things. Have you heard, for example, that people say the fires created by all the burning debris just are going for seven years? Seven years of fires. Does it say that? What does it say? For seven years, they will make fires of them. That doesn't mean that there's some big burning mass of tanks on fire for seven years. That's ridiculous. It says that they'll have enough wood to make fires for seven years without having to go into the forest and gather wood for themselves. Now, I happen to have a a half-quart of wood in my backyard. And in San Antonio, a half-quart of wood will go for two years. Three years. Right? Right? How much wood would I need to burn for seven years if I had a, a daily need for fuel with wood i don 't know maybe twenty cords, maybe thirty cords of wood right I could fill most of my backyard fence with wood all right but that 's one person all right so how many people will be in Israel in that day versus how many millions came with all of that wood you, in other words it's, it's not it, it kind of makes sense really when you think about it there 'll be enough wood brought in by all these invaders, and then left behind, that Israel just says, oh, that's convenient. We don't have to collect wood for seven years. And they just take all of that nicely prepared wood, and they burn it, and they use it for seven years. Now, what is this doing for us? It's confirming a couple of things for us. First of all, it's a confirmation that the tools they use are made of wood. Friends, wood burns, steel does not. And if you've ever wondered how tanks were going to burn for seven years, that's not sensible. Tanks don't burn for seven years. When the fuel is burned up, they stop burning metal does not burn so this cannot be a vision as i've often seen it portrayed of a modern battlefield destroyed and on fire and it's so massive it takes 7 years for it all. no that's that's hollywood that's not real life and it doesn't even fit the text because the text doesn't say the people watch a field burning it says they need the fire for their own or the wood for their own fires you know in the stove in the hearth all right that's the first thing we learn. Verse 10 says the people don't even bother to take wood from the field or gather firewood because they have the benefit of all that fuel. So they have enough fuel there for, for their needs. But um, I want you to also notice that there were enough invaders that they had enough material to keep Israel supplied for seven years. So this is also an indirect measure of how big the army was, right? By the way, I should also add that you don't use wood for driving your vehicle typically today you don't see israel today using wood to, to warm their homes they don't use wood to drive their factories right they don't use wood to cook on the stove further evidence that if they could use the wood for seven years and find it useful it's evidence of a rudimentary lifestyle not a modern context okay um and then there's the problem of the timing We're told that they need to burn this wood for seven years, that for seven years they've got a supply of wood. Okay, well, that reference to seven years of burning, of seven years of using wood, is a critical detail for trying to give us a sense of when this could happen in history. Remember I said the four primary interpretations? Symbolic, present day, tribulation, or kingdom. Okay. Well, seven years of burning, seven years of anything, would rule out option number three. That is the tribulation option. Completely rules it out, because tribulation itself is only seven years long. But even beyond that detail, this event, if it's in tribulation, would be the Armageddon War. Right? When does the Armageddon War happen in the time of tribulation? It's the very last event, a few days of, the last of that seven years at the very end. So the burning happens after the war is over. So the war ends at Christ's second coming according to what we know about tribulation. So we'd be saying that after the second coming of Christ, which is then going to ensue with the start of the kingdom, somewhere we have to allow for seven years of Israel just going about daily life burning wood. It, it, it could happen if what you're saying is God you know, prepositions seven years worth of wood for Israel to start the kingdom with. Maybe that could make some sense. But the detail would seem to eliminate that possibility because what we're told is in the time between Christ's second coming and the start of the kingdom, there's a great remaking of the earth in order to accommodate the kingdom's beginning, because you have a pretty bad situation when he comes back. The earth is a fixer-upper. There's a lot of things that need to be you know, addressed. The waters are all blood. No more mountains on the earth. No more islands on the earth. All the uh, trees are gone. All the grass is gone. There's no sun, moon, or stars. I mean, there's, there's some serious work to be done on the earth at that point. And the Lord does that work in preparation for the kingdom because we're told that he makes the heavens and earth new again for the kingdom. That's not the new heavens and new earth. It's a remaking of the current one. But Isaiah says that happens to, to give us a place to live that's acceptable. Okay? All of that would argue against just us seeing wood being used on the ground. The whole world's getting changed at that point. So that would seem to argue against version number three. But what it does do is offer for some a argument against version number four. For the very same reason, right? Because I'm telling you this happens at the end of the millennial kingdom. And some would say, well, don't you have the same problem there, Steve? you got seven years of activity after we're told that there's no more kingdom. Uh, but that's not what the Bible says. Look at chapter 20 of Revelation where we find the length of the kingdom. And in Revelation 20, verse 7, you hear this. You've read, you've, we read this last week. When the thousand years are complete, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. It's exactly what we've been studying, right? The war of Gog and Magog, an uncountable number of people coming up from from all over the earth to to attack Israel, which is what we've been looking at. Notice when it says it happens. Verse 7 again. When the thousand years are complete... When does the war that ends the time of the kingdom begin? Year 1001. Did you catch that? Look at verse 7. When the thousand years are complete, that is, after you count off a thousand years, then Satan is released. Then his release leads to an army. Then his army becomes a battle. Then the battle is Prosecuted, and then there's the burning, and then you have seven years. Well, that's all after the thousand years is complete. What we're learning is, there is a thousand years designated for the peaceful period of the kingdom in which Christ rules without opposition. Then, at that point, we're off the clock. At that point, the war starts. I mean, that's whether you, whatever you think about Ezekiel notwithstanding revelation 20 makes clear that the war happens after the thousand years is complete that's undisputable that's in that's in plain language so whatever you think about the gog magog connection you have to acknowledge there is going to be time after the thousand years because satan's not even let out until after the thousand years is complete and that's not a problem unless it's just new it may just be hard to grasp because it's new that doesn't make it a problem The Bible never says anything about there being no time after a thousand years. It just labels the time of the kingdom as peaceful for a thousand years. Then apparently, there's some undefined period of time right after that. And in that undefined period of time, you have a war. And again, I'm talking about what you see in chapter 20 of Revelation. I'm not even talking about Ezekiel at this point. I happen to think they're the same war. But even if you don't, you still have this undefined period of time that comes after the thousand years. All right? So after that's over, now you have this war. Now, if if you see that, then what you realize now is there's no worries at this point about how long things happen in the Ezekiel War, whether it's seven years or whatever, because we're not on the clock anymore. The Bible puts no constraints on us at this point when it comes to time. And for those of you who think this war happens in the time of Armageddon during tribulation, and you say to yourself, well, maybe I have the same option there. Maybe I can just say I'm off the clock. No, you're not off the clock because the kingdom comes right after that. And there is a defined period of time that connects the two. In Daniel chapter 12, we're told there's only 75 days. 75 days between the end of the tribulation and the beginning of the kingdom, according to Daniel. So you don't have the luxury there of saying you can just fit seven years in there and it doesn't matter. But you do have that option at the end of the time of uh, the kingdom. Okay. So we have a time at the end of the kingdom in which there is at least seven years in which God allows the people of Israel to continue living, After he's destroyed the army, using the wood as a testimony. Now, for the same reasons that I just mentioned, you cannot put this war in our time. Why? Because, number one, of course, you don't expect armies to fight with wooden weapons. Furthermore, even if such an event could take place today, people in modern Israel would not care about a field littered with wood for all the reasons i mentioned earlier they wouldn't need it it wouldn't be that important to them they're not going to go running out to collect it because they don't want to go into the woods people in israel aren't going out into the woods to find wood today there are no woods for the most part so what we're saying is that it doesn't make any sense to put any of this in the modern context it's funny to me as i read more commentary on this as i've tried to see how are guys coming to that conclusion the more i read about it, the more i'm like they just don't even address it they just run past it because i think you have to it just doesn't fit doesn't fit. There's no way to see this nation today, in our current circumstances, operating in these circumstances. All right, next passage, I think, just continues to make the case for me. Verse 11, he says, on that day I will give Gog a burial ground there in Israel, the valley of those who pass by east of the sea, and it will block off those who would pass by. So they will bury Gog there with all his horde, and they will call it the valley of and Gog. For seven months, the house of Israel will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. Even all the people of the land will bury them, and it will be to their renown on the day that I glorify myself, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men who will constantly pass through the land, burying those who are passing through, even those left on the surface of the ground, in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. As those who pass through the land pass through, and anyone sees a man's bone, they will set up a marker by it until the barriers have buried it in the valley of haman-gog And even the name of the city will be Hamona, so they will cleanse the land. Now this is, again, that weird part of the chapter, right? Because if you ask yourself, what's the reason this has to happen? There's no good reason if you put it in modern context. That is, why would God have this happening now, today? What would be the purpose in it today, knowing what's still yet to happen? It doesn't make any sense. But if you put it at the end of the kingdom, it starts to make perfect sense. First of all, you hear that Gog and all his multitude are buried in the land of Israel. And the location of burial is in a valley east of the sea. Now, the sea is the Med Sea, and the most prominent valley east of that is the Jordan River Valley. And so it would make sense that that's probably the valley mentioned here, since it's not named, you would assume it's the most prominent one. Just as if you say a city in Israel and don't mention it, typically it means Jerusalem. So the same would be true here. And you have so many bodies to bury in that large of a space, nonetheless that once they're in the ground, they block passage. You know, a Jew following the law would not transverse over a grave because it would make them unclean. So what you're hearing in the text is there'll be so many bodies that when they bury them in this wide valley that is now the Jordan River Valley, it basically blocks off people from walking through that area because they couldn't avoid walking on a grave because there's so many. Because there's so many people buried there. They have to rename the thing Hemingog, and Gog. And Haman just means multitude or uproar uh so basically it's a valley of the multitude of gog that's what they're going to call it so they're so numerous it takes seven months to bury them all why does israel go to the trouble to do this why do they care right what's the point we're at the end of the kingdom this is again an argument some would make as to why it can't be at the end of the kingdom but god says notice verse 13 even though they, they, when they find a bone, they're going to carefully mark it, and they don't want anyone to stumble across a body and, and become defiled. They want to mark it. They want to bury it. They want to treat everything meticulously. Verse 13, he says, I'm doing this so that all the people of Israel, he says, as they bury their oppressors, they will become renowned renown. That is, Israel will make a name for itself among the nations for how they responded to their own oppressors as they came against them. And this is in something Jeremiah speaks of. Jeremiah was a contemporary of Ezekiel. They lived at the same time. And look what Jeremiah was saying at the same time. Jeremiah 33.7. He says, speaking about the future of Israel, 33.7, he says, I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and w- will rebuild them as they were at first, I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. It will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I do for them. And they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I make for them. So God says that the rest of the world will see Israel and God's relationship with Israel in the the kingdom as a testimony. God will take advantage of that opportunity. In the kingdom, you've oh, got to keep this in mind, by the way, or this doesn't make sense. You're in a world in which a lot of people in the world, in the kingdom now, don't know Jesus, and therefore are not His. Okay, We're there, we're ruling them, we're His, but there's others underneath us who are not. And in that time, His relationship with Israel is His testimony to the world. Think of a parallel, and you'll see how God works in similar fashion throughout history. Before the church came along, Israel was the light to the nations, or was supposed to be. And he dwelled among them so that he could show himself among his people, and through that relationship, he could show himself to the world, right? Didn't work out because Israel did what Israel did. Then the church comes, and in the time of the church, how does God glorify himself among the nations? in the church he dwells in the church and through us he says by your good works shine your good light, your your light before men so they would see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven right so he is still announcing himself to the world through a relationship to his people and in the kingdom to come he comes back to israel he dwells among them and once again through his relationship to israel he makes a name for himself among the nations this is always god's pattern right but at some point he gets his way At some point, it's no longer God trying to show you that he's God, talking to people about it. At some point, everyone knows it. And the events that culminate the kingdom are the events that bring about that outcome in its full force, so that there's no doubt on earth anymore as to who God is, and that he dwells among his people Israel. That's the situation. Zephaniah says it this way. Zephaniah 3.17. He said, The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior, he will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in His love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. Think about that. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is burden on them. Behold, I'm going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples on the earth when I restore your fortunes before their eyes, says the Lord. So part of how he does that is in their fortunes of the earth and in their presence with him in the temple, etc. But another part of that is how he deals with the oppressors and how he deals with those who grieve about the appointed feasts and about those who come against him. And he says he will deal with them in such a way that God will show himself to be on Israel's side and it will bring renown to them. So as they are supernaturally defended by God, they are given seven years of burning. Now think about the testimony that is. To the rest of the world, for seven years, Israel has enough wood at their disposal. They don't even have to go out and gather wood. That is a testimony in itself to the rest of the nations that God was on their side. Because what it says indirectly is how big the army was. It's a way of saying, Israel was sitting in their homes, fat, dumb, and happy, and an army big enough to give them wood for seven years entered their land and nothing came of it. And God will be renowned for that among the nations. And then... Israel, in response to their enemies, spends seven months patiently burying their bodies, respecting them in a way that they would not have respected Israel. And in that, they gain renown for that as well. Renown for their meticulous concern over the bodies of their enemies. Because remember, Israel's all glorified. They're sinless. They're going to act with the heart of God in all of this, as God appoints. All of those details in this chapter then support the purpose of this chapter as it is shown in that chart I gave you that God would sanctify himself among the nations through Israel in these events. So the war and his defense of them is chapter 38. But now his aftermath of cleanup is his opportunity to show himself through Israel to the world. And that turns us back to the text once more and we finish very quickly in verse 17. He says, As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to every kind of bird and to every beast of the field. Assemble and come, gathered from every side, to my sacrifice, which I'm going to sacrifice for you, as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, as though they were rams, lambs, goats, and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. So you will eat fat until you are gutted and drink blood until you are drunk, and from my sacrifice which I have sacrificed for you. You will be gutted at my table with horses and charioteers, with mighty men and all the men of war, declares the Lord God. All right, in the Bible, the Lord, is, as you know, directs people to make sacrifices of animals, right? So the process is simple. You sacrifice a bull or a goat. The whole thing was intended to remind us of our sin and the need for covering in a blood sacrifice, right? Now you have the final act of war, And the Lord has turned the tables. Remember, this event is the final moment of this world. This event is the last event of human history on planet Earth. Okay? What we're studying here is the end. Because what comes... I mean, the seven years with the eating and the glutting and all that, this, this is the last act of this age, of all ages on this Earth. After this, you have... Heavens and earth fleeing, and you know they cannot be found again. And then, new heavens and new earth comes. All right, so this is a comp- this is the end of life as we know it on this planet. This is the last event. And what does God say? I mean, if you ask somebody, that's kind of an interesting question, right? When what is the very last thing God does with this planet before it's all over and He goes on to the next thing? That might be a significant thing, don't you? I mean, what was the very first event? Right? Let there be light. I mean, there's very first things and there's very last things. They tend to be significant. What's the last thing? Well, the last thing is God makes. Humanity, a sacrifice for animals. Instead of animals a sacrifice for humanity, he makes humanity a sacrifice for the animals. The animals gain the benefit while man pays the price. God is the one who makes the sacrifice as opposed to we make it as as obedience to God. The message is this. The need for sacrifice of any kind has come to an end. That is, the Lord himself conducts the final sacrifice... Offering up those who opposed him. Trivia question. Who made the first sacrifice in Scripture? And when did he make that first sacrifice? When he made the clothes for Adam and woman. God killed the first animal to make the clothing that put Adam and woman under covering. And he makes the last sacrifice of this age, of the planet, but reverses it. He takes those who oppose him and sacrifices them for the animals. All right? That gives opportunity then for the Lord to be glorified in all things, in grace and in judgment, in mercy and in His wrath. Verse 21, He says, I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations will see my judgment which I have executed and my hand which I have laid on them. And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from that day onward. The nations will know that the house of Israel went into exile for their iniquity because they acted treacherously against me and I hid my face from them so, they, so I gave them into the hand of their adversaries and all of them fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions I dealt with them and I hid my face from them. So he's summarizing here his purpose, right? He says, I did all this to set my glory among the nations. But you notice then in verse 23 he comes back to talking about Israel as they were when he wrote this when Israel was getting the word from Ezekiel, they were in exile. They had just come out of a battle. They had lost. And so he says, when the people of Israel see all of this at the end of the time of this world, they'll be able to look back and see that God easily defeated an invading army in the time of Gog and Magog that was uncountable. So when they let Nebuchadnezzar's puny little army defeat us, Well, obviously he was allowing that because he could have stopped that one too. They'll be able to put all the dots together. In other words, the Lord has always had the power to defeat God's enemies and so when an enemy prevailed against God, it must mean God permitted it. And they will have then, only then, the historical perspective on which to fully appreciate all that God had been doing for Israel throughout all the centuries, appointing outcomes as he needed them to be so that at the end of it all, God could be glorified through it. He's promising them Essentially, in Ezekiel's day, you don't see it yet, but there is a day to come when you're going to be able to look back on all this and understand why it had to be the way it is. Kind of like how you tell your kids. This hurts me more than it hurts you. Which we know is not true, by the way. Just don't tell the kids that. Anyway, this is a, what you're hearing here is a consequence of God's sovereignty. You come to understand that even the tragedies of life are God-ordained for good purpose. And when you understand that bad things in life, quote, bad things in life were appointed by God, then what that causes you to do is make an effort to understand how God intended to use them. You, you, you Instantly, your mind changes in thinking about them to, woe is me, to why is God do- doing it? And that leads you to good answers, right? That leads you to something meaningful that can help you. And that's what he wanted to do in Ezekiel's day. We'll finish the chapter and this is further commentary. This doesn't require commentary, so let's just read it out. Verse 25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They will forget their disgrace and all their treachery which they perpetrated against me when they live securely on their own land with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them from the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of the many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord their God because I made them go into the exile among the nations then ga- and then gathered them again to their own land and I will leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer for I have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. So this is the purpose of God putting a war on at the end of the kingdom, letting it transpire the way it did, figuring it all out at the end of it all so that at, at the conclusion the world looks back and sees all that God did. So here's the summary of the war, and then we'll be done. You have God instigating an attack from a man and and an army, letting Satan loose as an instrument for his purposes in deceiving the world, causing the world to come against Israel in an uncountable army, men and women, who've never seen warfare before, never even contemplated it before, but now because Satan is loose, they're willing to do so. And they come against Israel for the wealth of Israel, believing that Israel is vulnerable, they can take it, And they come with all these rudimentary weapons of wood, by land, from three directions. And the Lord says, come on, let's get this done. And as they show up, he strikes them with fire from heaven. They are a sacrifice of God, made for the sake of Israel, for the feast of birds. And in the end, he accomplishes two purposes. First, it serves to show the Lord faithful to his peace covenant, defending Israel against an enemy that he provoked so that he could show himself faithful. And secondly, he makes himself known throughout the earth as the God who dwells among Israel by how he defends them in their midst, putting all of Christ's enemies under his feet. The final act of rebellion against Christ is this one act of war and it allows him to defeat everyone on earth, glorifying himself and putting an end to the need for the kingdom. That's what we just learned. Heavenly Father, we want to glorify you among the nations. We want to see your name lifted up. We want Christ to be declared and revered. For, Father, we know how important, how special, uh, how unequaled he is to the world and its future, and uh, for us personally. We do that, Father, by our works, by shining good works among men so that they might see our good works and glorify you for it. We thank you, Father, for that option and that opportunity. We ask, the Lord, that you let us remember that in every moment of our day so that we don't fall back to ourselves and forget our opportunities to witness through our works but father most of all give us a heart for the knowing uh knowing what's coming a heart to want to see it come soon to be a part of that kingdom soon to be ready for it soon Uh, not to let this world father distract us so that when you come for us we're thinking about other things but rather father have us uh, thinking and acting like a kingdom priest now ready to serve you And use it, Father, to glorify yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.